a Superman action figure in a toy coffin, a blue shirt and red jacket, a first flight in the sun above the Arctic tundra. These are some of the moments that define my Superman fandom. Together on this podcast, we journey across time and media to examine, discover, and reconsider the creative visions that have shaped the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me for part four of Crisis Till Death is returning guest, Scott Honig. Scott, welcome back. Hey, thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited to get to talk about these comics. Did I give you enough homework for this episode? Yeah, I actually had uh, told my kids to leave me alone because I was doing my homework and they asked what it was. It's Superman comics and they couldn't believe it. <laughs> Listen, what better homework could you ask for? But this was, this was no uh, light lift here. Uh, we read, by my count, 53 issues uh, across Superman, Adventures of Superman, and Action Comics. I'll give the issues in a moment for anyone who wants to know. Uh, but in this episode, we, we are going to be covering the immediate post-John Byrne era of the Superman titles from the late 80s. And the, the tentpole storyline of this era was Superman in Exile. And before we, we get into more of the specifics, you and I were talking off mic uh, fairly recently about how you were reading these issues. And I'm going to spare I'm going to spare our audience another rant about the DC app. I've done enough of that, and I think my feelings are known at this point. But I know I know that there were some out of print trades that you have that you were able to to read uh, a good bit of the run from that. But otherwise, you did read on the app, but you read in a way that I was I was very surprised by. Would you mind sharing? Sure. So I I have the the trade for the Superman Exile storyline, which I don't think is still in print. Um, I read the other issues on the DC Infinite app, but I read them on my phone. Uh, I don't have my own tablet, so I and I wanted it to be portable, so I was reading it on my phone. But I was reading it specifically in the panel-to-panel view because you really can't decipher the text uh, of a full page on a screen that size. So um, what was interesting about it was when you read panel to panel, every panel is like a page turn in a regular comic, right? It's all a surprise. It's all a big cliffhanger. So I was surprised constantly, which was fun. <laughs> so Scott basically had like thousands of cliffhangers over the course of this reading assignment, uh, which which is fascinating. I do read digitally and I did read basically everything for this episode via the app, except for the few issues that they didn't have, which I bought on eBay. And, um, but I've never, I've never really been a fan of the guided view, but I certainly understand if you're dealing with a phone and not a tablet that that just for the sake of your eyes, (laughs) um, that's the way to go. So in terms of what, uh, our reading assignment was for this episode, for anyone who is, is curious and wants to know specifically what we read, uh, Superman issues 23 through 43, Action Comics 643 to 652 plus Annual number two, and Adventures of Superman numbers 445 through 465. Now you might note that the action list was shorter than the other ones, and that's because uh, for a, a period of time, action went weekly, and Superman was not the featured player 
And once Superman returned to Action Comics and it returned to a monthly schedule, it sort of rejoined the rest of the super books. And that's when we folded it into our reading assignment. So for the first bit of our reading, we were really dealing primarily with, with two titles here. And in terms of the creators, uh, you know, at the beginning of this, we had uh, Jerry Ordway writing and drawing Adventures of Superman, and we had uh, Roger Stern and Kerry Gamble, I don't know if I'm saying that right, on, um, on the Superman title. Eventually, we would, get, we would get a little bit of shuffling of the creative teams, and Ordway ended up on Superman. We had Dan Jurgens on Adventures, and we had um, Roger Stern, as well as George Perez, for, for a period. And I don't think he was, he ended up doing quite as much as was originally intended, because he started on action writing and drawing, and then he ended up, I think it was more plotting and, or, and inking or layout, stuff like that. But in any event, those are the, you know, the primary creators uh, for the issues we read. Now, there's so much to unpack, and I just want to lay this out for our audience <laughs> right at the top. You and I spoke about this off mic. You know, we're not going to be doing an issue by issue breakdown here. These episodes are long enough to begin with, and we'd be here forever. So, you know, we'll be talking about, you know, the major storylines, the major themes, the characterization, the, uh, you know, what was going on with each character and relationship. I think that's sort of how we will be organizing our conversation, not really doing an issue by issue analysis here. I think there are other podcasts, you know, for something like that. But let me ask you, Scott, and this is often a question that I begin with, you know, with guests, especially when we're talking about a reading project like this. I mean, what were, what were your overall impressions? And I guess more than anything else, did you enjoy this? I did, and I enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to. Not that I thought that I wouldn't like it, but, you know, look, we all know that the 90s, particularly the early 90s, kind of get a bad rap, um, that uh, it's not particularly well known for being, a, you know, sort of fertile ground for, you know, classic or great comics. Um, so I wasn't really sure what to expect. I really hadn't read, I hadn't read most of these issues uh, ever before. I'd read around it. Certainly, obviously we're leading up to what will be the death of Superman and kind of moving forward. So I knew stylistically a little bit what I was getting myself into. Uh, but I was, I was really impressed. Uh, they were more than anything fun. They were just fun comics. Um, I was impressed with, um, the way that everything came together um, across three different titles, uh, the way that they were interwoven across those titles, because you don't have one plot in the Superman book, one in action and one in adventures. They really are. It's sort of a rotating thing. Uh, obviously they were coming out one book, one week, then the next book next week. And so fans started to get on that, that Superman train, you know, where pretty much every, every week of the month, almost, you get a new a new chapter, and the storylines continue uh, throughout. So it's funny, I, you know, having listened to your previous episodes on the Golden Age and the Silver Age and the Bronze Age, it was really easy to kind of slot this in because, as you mentioned in in those episodes, you know, the Golden Age had the origin, and then it was really Superman as a social crusader. It was developing the the power set, figuring out really who this character is going to be. Um, and then in the Silver Age, largely because of the comics code and all that, the stories became pretty silly. Uh, you know, they, you know, there there's some fun ones, but you know, they're they're kind of goofy. Um, and then the Bronze Age became, uh, you know, a little bit more serious, more experimental, but for the most part, still self-contained stories. And now here in the early '90s, we get, you know, this juggling act among the creators. Um, 
that's going to lead to what we know is this sort of triangle, the famous triangle era, where you have to actually keep track of which books go in which order, otherwise you'll be lost. It's funny because when I announced this miniseries event here, this weekly event of, of, of episodes, and I, you know, one of the episodes, uh, actually our next one is titled Dawn of the Triangle Era. And when I listed them all out on social media, one of my friends was like, what's the Triangle Era? And I was like, oh boy, are you in for a treat? I, I echo everything um, you said. And I, I mean, I have to tell you, I so enjoyed this reading project. And I got a huge smile on my face for anyone who's, who's not watching us on YouTube. If you're listening, I have a huge smile on my face. You know, I was looking forward to this, this part of the reading project more than, than pretty much anything else. I mean, not that I wasn't looking forward to the burn issues, but and I don't say this in a dismissive way, but I, I kind of just saw them as something. It's like, I have to get through these. And I, I ended up enjoying most of that reading, really, for the most part. Um, but I was really excited to get here because, again, as everyone knows, I started with, with the death of Superman and basically all of the creators were talking about you know, over this episode and the next two episodes, which you will be my guest for for the for these for these next three parts. Um, you know, they're the same creators who are still working on the books at that time, and there's so much stuff that they're laying the groundwork for even here that will come to fruition uh, when I when I was started when I started reading. So to get to see all of this stuff get set up and introduced was so cool. And just beyond that, I mean, the story they're really really strong. I mean. You know, these were not issues that I read in an academic sense. These weren't issues that I read just to get some context or some continuity. I mean, I have genuinely enjoyed these. I mean, I think these guys who are working on these books were really, really firing on all cylinders. I mean, you were on this show at the very beginning of this podcast, I think episode two, and we talked about the uh, the Jeff Loeb era of the Superman titles from the early 2000s. And, you know... There are parts of that era that I think really held up well. Other parts that, you know, I probably remembered better than than they actually were. That still holds a very special place for me, just at the age that I was when those issues came out and everything. But I I don't know. I think by the time we're done with these next few episodes, I think this um, era leading up to the death of Superman might might supplant the Loeb era as my favorite period of the super titles i'm 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 gonna go so far as to say that i was so impressed uh, that is a bold statement i didn't expect <laughs> you to say that um no what's funny is so so you and i i think are about a decade apart in age right so so the age that you were when you discovered the the Loeb kelly era that was the age i was during these stories and i wasn't reading them right so i i, I also sort of jumped in at, at the death of superman so this was all stuff that sort of just passed me by a little bit. And because it's never been, these are not the stories that, you know, when you ask people in the know, what Superman stories must I read, right? What's really important? Nobody goes to this era, right? They don't say, well, you should read the, you know, the Dan Jurgens and Roger Stern era in the early 90s, right? They might point to Byrne and they might point to the Dan Jurgens a little bit later with the death of Superman. But this stuff that slots in the middle, you know, it's generally not, you know, at the forefront of people's brains. It's not on those, you know, top 10 lists or anything like that. So I feel like had I read them at that age, I probably would f would have felt about these stories the way that you feel about the Loeb era. But I felt reading them now at 43, 
kind of like a 12 year old. I, I, I got that much joy out of them, discovering them for the first time and just getting in touch with this style of storytelling, which I really haven't read probably since, since I was a teenager. It was a real joy. I'm so, and I'm so glad that you enjoyed this project. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to really sink your teeth into with these issues. I mean, the writers were really weaving a very rich tapestry of the supporting cast and, and primary storylines and subplots. And, you know, there are certain issues, particularly, you know, early in this run um, where, you know, Superman is still, you know, racked with guilt over killing the, the villains from the pocket universe. And, I think it's actually the first issue of Adventures that's part of our reading project here where Superman doesn't appear for like the first good chunk of the issue. And there's so much going on and you're so invested in the other characters that it's like you almost don't even notice. Um, so yeah, what they were doing and again, the seeds that they were planting that would come to fruition later. I mean, it was really, it was really quite a feat. I mean, if we were to take a look at, again, these 53 issues, I think they kind of fall into two big buckets. One would be the lead up to Exile, where Superman is racked with guilt over killing the pocket universe villains. He has a psychotic break and unbeknownst to himself, starts going out at night as the vigilante gangbuster. And upon realizing what he's done and realizing the risk that he's putting the earth at, he decides to exile himself into space. And he goes on this journey of self-discovery. And that's sort of, I think, the first big bucket that we can kind of put these issues into. And then for the second one, I think if we had to boil it down to one word, it would have to be eradicator. Uh, so, at, <laughs> you know, at the end of the exile story, Superman comes into the, into the possession of this Kryptonian device. And it's his first tangible connection to his home world. And, you know, over the course of, again, like the second half of the issues we read, you know, the eradicator would create this mental link between Superman and Matrix the Eradicator creates the fortress in the Antarctic. The uh, the Eradicator, and eventually in the final storyline that we read, uh, Day of the Krypton Man, basically reprograms Superman and turns him into this cold, calculating Kryptonian persona. Uh, so that's really that's really the the meat of this run here. So for for people who have read it, I'm sure that will ring a lot of bells. And for anyone who hasn't read the run, who's maybe just kind of curious about it big picture those are sort of like the major arcs uh you know in terms of of what we read yeah the the build-up to exile was much shorter than the build-up to day of the krypton man uh you know it it felt it felt almost like they were you know bronze age one-offs you know you had a silver banshee story in there you had a rampage story you had a brainiac story that who would ever have known at that point how long that thing would get dragged <laughs> out? Um, you know, you've got a couple of the stories with the Thanagarian invasion, um, you know, the gangbuster stuff, and then, you know, there's a Guardian appearance at the end, and and, and all of it serves to, you know, w- with its subplot, serves to, to lead us to the eventual decision to exile himself. And then he's gone for a while, and we watch him out in space, and we watch how the supporting cast, uh, you know, deals with a, a Supermanless Earth, um, but then coming out of exile, you really don't, you don't know where it's going, right? All these plots sort of dovetail and there are a lot of them. There are a lot of characters that these creators are juggling. And so, you know, one of the things you'll notice, 
especially depending on which title you're reading at a time, different characters sort of come to the fore in, in various titles. There's, you know, there's some, a certain A plot and then there's a B, a C, and sometimes a D plot and it'll run for a certain period. And then that B plot will rise to take the place of the A plot as the A plot gets resolved. And then B, you know, C and D move up as well. And, and, and you just kind of get this rotating arcing kind of, um, uh, sequence, which is, I can't, I can't imagine as, as, a, as writers, how difficult that is to, to achieve, but it works for the most part. I mean, a couple of hiccups, I think in there, but for the most part, I think it really, really works. And what's neat about doing that in the buildup today of the Krypton man is because because of the nature of that story, which essentially thematically is asking, you know, what, you know, how, how does one person balance essentially three different aspects of himself? He is Clark Kent, he is Kal-El, and he is Superman. And, and can he be all three of those? And can he have a life in which he fulfills all three of those parts of his personality? when he be, he begins to pull away from his Clark Kent identity, right? be, choosing to eschew emotion for pure logic. He keeps, we see those little hints, like it wouldn't be logical to do this, or this is the only logical decision. As a reader, I think you feel, you feel as, as off put, as off put and, uh, uh, and as uncomfortable as the characters do interacting with him because he really, his relationships start to really fall apart. Jimmy, his parents, Lana, Lois, Perry White, he has, ends up leaving the Daily Planet for a while and going somewhere else. So, you know, I was uncomfortable until I realized where it was all going. And then I went, oh, okay, now I get it. Yeah, that in particular was a gem of a story. I mean, I, I agree with what you said earlier. I think, you know, when people are making recommendations about Superman stories and runs, especially, you know, if they're talking about this period of time, it's like, yeah, they'll likely tell you to read Man of Steel and then they'll probably jump to Death of Superman, maybe Exile. And I know DC, to their credit, I guess, they did put out that Exile omnibus a, a little while back that collected that whole storyline. But Day of the Krypton Man, I think, was really an underrated gem. And uh, I know that's the end of what we read, but uh, man... The fact that the Kents are the ones who come to his rescue, I love that so much. And, you know, it, it, it just rang so true. It's like they're talking to, you know, to Kal-El on the phone, right? And he's just so dismissive. And, uh, you know, he goes to visit the, the, the farm for Lana's birthday. And he's just so cold and standoffish. And they know that something's wrong. And, you know, we're not at a point in the story yet where Lois is in on this. Like, it's just the Kents and Lana. But poor Lana's been put through enough. It's like Jonathan and Martha, like, that's it. That's the rescue squad. And it's like they get on a plane and they come to Metropolis and they end up in the fortress and like they're able to get through to him. And it's like, you know, one of the massive changes, you know, between pre and post crisis was the fact that now the Kents are alive. And I feel like a story like this shows like why, why it's so impactful to have them. It's like their boy was in trouble. And like they went and got him and they set him straight. Oh, I, I love that. Yeah, I know you're always a fan of, of, having the Kents be around and alive uh, for Superman stories. And, and I, I echo that. I mean, this is, this is a story that justifies that decision. Um, you know, the, the fact that 
they were able to get through to him. But but they did it. They appealed to what was clearly Kal-El's need for logic. Right. right? They, yes, they're appealing to his emotions, right? They're saying, you're our son, we're your parents, we love you, we raised you. So they, there is that emotional appeal. But there is also that that logical appeal where they say, well, if you know, if you if you wanted to cut all of your ties with all the people you have any feelings for, why did you have your robots pack these photographs of you with your parents and you with Lana on the farm? And he doesn't really have an answer for it because it wasn't logical, right? According to whatever Kryptonian directive he had in his head. So they were smart enough, right, to 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 go in, at both uh, both aspects of him at once, and that's what broke him. Yeah, no, I, I I love that. You know, it's funny. I wasn't thinking this at the time, but it calls to mind. Of course, it always comes back to Smallville. Uh, at the beginning of season nine of Smallville, Clark has turned his back on his human side after the death of one of his friends. I won't spoil it, I guess, even though the show's been over for ten years. But anyway, uh, so at the start of the of the season nine, you know, this is when he's wearing the the black shirt and trench coat, and he's really he's finally started his training at the fortress with Jor El. Uh, yet he keeps coming back to the farm to feed the dog. And Chloe calls him out on that. She's like, well, that's there's really nothing more human than like still taking care of the dog. And so it's like, yeah, there's always going to be that that tie. While we're talking about the Kents, one of my favorite, favorite scenes in this is right before Superman exiles himself. He goes to the farm to say goodbye and he finally, you know, un, unburdens himself and, and tells Mon Pa what he did to those criminals in the in the pocket universe. And what I loved about their reaction was that they didn't, you know, they didn't coddle him, but they didn't lecture him. I really felt like they engaged with him almost more as, as, as peers. I mean, I really, I really loved the counsel that they offered. And, you know, especially for Jonathan, someone who's been to war, I think he was able to relate to Clark. And he's like, you know, listen, what you're experiencing is probably not dissimilar from, you know, from what I felt or, you know, a, a police officer who, you know, might shoot someone in the line of duty. And I just, I thought that was... That was really powerful. And again, the fact that he is saying goodbye to them at that point in the story. Again, I think that's another benefit of having them alive in this, because if this were a pre-crisis story, there's no one really for him to say goodbye to. Uh, so I, I really I really thought that was great. And, and again, those are a couple of examples of, you know, um, the value, I think, of having the Kents alive in this. Yeah, and for as moral as Jonathan Kent is, right, that's where Superman gets it's the compass, you know, the moral compass from. Um, he recognizes, number one, he has to trust his now adult son to do what's right, right, to make his own choices. He is, a, he is an adult, right? He's no longer living under the Kent roof, but also understands that while Jonathan is there as counsel, if Clark ever needs it, he will never understand what it is to be Superman. Only one person does, and that's Clark. So Clark is going to make the decisions he makes with that moral compass that Jonathan gave him. But at the end of the day, Jonathan can't cast aspersions on him because he has no idea what it's like. Scott, that calls to mind a scene from the series finale of Smallville. <laughs> it does. There, you know, the final scene of guidance between Jonathan and Clark, where Jonathan's like, my guidance is just not enough. Um Anyway, I won't. I won't keep bringing. But it always comes back to Smallville. Uh, I love these connection. I love these connection points, and I have more to say on that. But um, actually, one other thing that is Jonathan and Martha related. 
we read 53 issues. You probably know exactly how many panels since you went one by one, but <laughs> I, I actually can, I can tell you, I have a favorite panel in the entire, in the entire <laughs> 53 issues. And it's towards the end of the exile storyline at this point, you know, Superman has been captured by Mongol and forced to compete as, as a gladiator and he fights Draga. I guess we'll go with that pronunciation. It calls to mind Drago. And given that Rocky Four came out just around this time, I can't help but think if there was maybe a little connection there. But, you know, they're supposed to fight to the death. And of course, Superman, you know, especially at this point, having having killed, you know, he's now resolved not to do that. And so he rejects the orders that he's given and he spares Draga's life. Draga, a warrior, a born warrior, feels this is, you know, he's been dishonored. It's either kill or be killed. He can't be spared. He can't be saved. And not only does Superman spare him, but then in subsequent battles, he proceeds to save Draga numerous times. And Draga, in frustration, like, calls him out on this. He's like, you were supposed to kill me, yet you keep saving me. Why? And Superman, you know, he's been through the ringer at this point, and he's, and he's weak, and he's kind of weary, but he says, it's just, it's just the way I was brought up, I guess. And that's my favorite panel in these 53 issues. Ah. Uh. That's so good. I had forgotten about it, but uh, I'm so glad that you reminded me. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, there's a moment too where you know he is—he's not wearing his costume. He's wearing sort of rags and and things. His hair is all grown out. He's got this beard. I mean, he is just a—he's just a mess because he's been away from home and he's been in you know in the in the arena and and you know essentially he's beaten Draga, but he will not land the killing blow. And in defiance, right? He sort of you know, sort of throws up his fists toward wherever Mongol happens to be watching from. And he just says, Superman doesn't kill, you know, and he like screams it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's inspiring to see how far he's been pushed and that he, he, he won't do that. But then again, knowing, as you said, where that comes from, right? Because he had, he had done it. Um, and to watch him come back from it, it's, it's great. It's yeah. These are some, these were some really good, character stories that being alone out in space right without the supporting cast th their stories continue but they're not there with him you know that it allows us really to shine the spotlight on superman as superman comics should every now and again but but i thought this was a really smart conceit the exile conceit in allowing us to see you know who superman really is because again everything leading up to this is superman in metropolis you know, interacting with a, a, an increasingly large supporting cast. Yeah. So first, I just want to say that, uh, yeah, that that scene where he, you know, he defies Mongol and he calls Mongol out and he's like, come down here and face me yourself. It was such a badass moment. I loved it. And I love the beard. You know, that's actually why I, 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 sh I did not shave for this. Uh, in honor of the the beard. Now, my beard pales in comparison to what Superman was able to grow during his time in space. Nevertheless, it's my my slight homage. But your 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 point is is great, and I actually wasn't thinking about that, but it's very true because I do love the supporting cast, and I I think these writers did a great job of of really building them out and making them feel real. And that's why I think you know when when he is exiled during this storyline, and then when he's dead you know, after his, his fight with Doomsday, you're still invested because now you've bought into these characters. However, to your point, and I, I, I do think it's a valid one, 
if if there are so many characters he's interacting with and you're you know i think you do sometimes run the risk of then defining the character in terms of you know again how the others are seeing him and certainly by the time we got to the late 90s i know a criticism of the books was that the supporting cast had really ballooned you know we were getting character spending a lot of time with characters maybe who didn't necessarily warrant you know that much page time at the expense of the main character um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, sending him off into space the way they did was, was really effective. You know, I also think that, and I'm not a psychologist. I took psychology for a semester in college. I loved it, but I didn't pursue it. But, uh, I think that this was a very, like a surprisingly sophisticated depiction of guilt, um, in this storyline, you know, his guilt over, over killing because over, and however many issues it ended up running, it was a you know a good chunk of issues when we're talking about the lead up and then exile. And for the most part, he's running away from the guilt internally, and that leads to the creation of this gangbuster persona physically when he literally leaves Earth. And it's only at the end of the story where he where he meets the cleric who you know we'll talk more about, and cleric is able to share all this insight into the history of Krypton with him. But you know he has this heart to heart with cleric and finally confronts what he's done and kind of and finally processes it and i think that um that was very meaningful you know again that we had all these issues of him running from it and it's only when he confronted it and it's only when he with cleric's help you know kind of came to this realization that even if even if it was a mistake even if it was a sin the the greater sin would be depriving the world of its greatest hero because of this guilt that he's feeling. And, you know, he's finally able to return and return the right way. And I, I was, I was really impressed, you know, I think from that, from that sort of psychological perspective, I I mean, did that work for you? It did. I mean, the, the, the many issues that we read, I see cycles of guilt, right? It's, it's not just one instance of guilt and then he deals with it and moves on, right? He's, when we, when we picked up with these issues, you know, he is, again, he's dealing with the guilt from having, you know, killed some criminals. Uh, that leads him to become gangbuster in, unknowingly. And then when he, re- as you said, when he realizes what he's been doing, then that leads to a new round of guilt. And that's why he exiles himself, right? Because he has to go, he, he has to, you know, make sure that Earth is safe from him, right? And so he is now processing that guilt. And then when he comes back, right, when he comes back and he has the eradicator, and realizes that the Eradicator is responsible, at least at first, for all of the weirdness going on with Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. Right? Because, I mean, they took pages right out of the Silver Age with that stuff. I mean, he's stretching, he loses his hair, it's all kinds of weird stuff. Um, but, but you know, he's dealing with guilt from that too, right? The fact that, you know, his best pal is going through an ordeal because of him. And so... A lot of these stories deal with Superman doing the best he can with what he's got, being there for as many people as possible, but also failing in a lot of ways at the same time. So it does ask questions about, you know, is it is it better to have him there? Is it better to not have him there? I, you know, I, I think and I think those are valid questions, you know, meta questions for the readers, the audience to ask as well. Yeah, and I, I I agree with all of that, and I think yeah we there was a, a high level of relatability in these stories, you know, in terms of what he was wrestling with. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I, you know, a, a question that I had, and I'll actually 
I'm, I'll pose it to you. I'll pose it to our audience because, you know, the thing I, I went into this, oh, I guess I haven't addressed this yet. Before this reading project, I had read a little bit. I, at one point in time, I did own the original Exile trade paperback. That's now out of print. And at a, during one of my collection prunings, I got rid of it. You're holding it up now. That's exactly That's the one. one, right? That's the one that I had. So, so as a kid, I did have that at one point and I did read it. And I don't think it has like all the lead up stuff necessarily with gangbusters. It probably just has the main, the main story. Um, but you know, so I had read that and that was about it as far as what I had previously read. But from that and just from reading about Superman and, you know, it's been referenced in subsequent storylines, I knew that Superman was gangbuster. I knew that going into the story. I guess the question I had for anyone who read it cold, not knowing, was it, obvious that you okay so what how, did you did you know where that was going could you see where the seeds that they were planting i didn't i knew i knew that there was a gangbuster character i remember him being there in a couple of random stories i must have read throughout the 90s and when we got to the other gangbuster identity jose jose delgado then it it registered oh right that's who gangbuster was i had no idea about the previous incarnation that was Clark. I had no idea. Okay. So, because as I was reading it, I said to myself, like, you know, would would it be clear that it's like, okay, clearly this is going to be Superman. And, and I think they did a, a really interesting job with it because, and the way this plays out for anyone who hasn't read it in a while or hasn't read it at all, you know, Clark is perpetually tired no matter how much sleep he gets. Um, so there are, there are clues like that, that something is amiss. And this new gangbuster, because gangbuster, you know, we talked about this in prior episodes, you know, the Jose Delgado character and his gangbuster uh, alias, you know, these were introduced in, in prior storylines. And ultimately, Jose was injured and paralyzed defending Lois, and he was off the board. And then this new gangbuster showed up. And often the gangbuster would show up, like right after Superman was like knocked out and missing. And all of a sudden, Gangbuster would show up. And there were numerous remarks from the people he was fighting. Like, you know, wow, like nothing hard, nothing can hurt this guy. And he's leaping farther than, uh, than you know, a normal person necessarily would. Um, at the same time, um, they did give us a, a couple of red herrings. There was um, the former employee of LexCorp, Amanda McCoy, I think, um, from Superman number two. Uh, she had ran that computer program and deduced that Clark was Superman and Lex rejected that notion and fired her. And so uh, in these issues, she's hired a PI uh, to try to prove that Clark is Superman. And there was at least one instance where um, I think Gangbuster had been fighting underwater or something. And then the PI in the next scene, we see the PI showing up, you know, with Amanda and he's wet and he's like, oh, I just washed my face. So they gave you at least one, and there maybe there were a couple of other red herrings where it's like, okay, maybe it could be this person. But the thing I kept coming back to is I feel like if I had been reading this cold, I would not have suspected Superman just because that was a very severe turn. Like I just would have assumed like there's no way his psyche has been damaged that severely that he would be going out and not realizing it. So I think it was a really cool twist. And and again, for people who, you know, are out there, if you know, whether you were surprised or not, I, you know, I would love to hear from you. I was very curious about that, you know, for people who read it cold. Because again, I, I went in knowing that, but I kept thinking it all along. Well, I also think it's it's something that you can do when you're telling stories like this, where you again you have such a large and rotating cast of characters, and the 
each issue is a series of quick cuts scene to scene to scene to scene right i mean there's you know 15 20 scenes in a 22 page comic where every page page and a half two pages at most you're moving to another location with a new cast of characters so it's i think it's easy when you describe it the way you just did and say well we saw this then we saw this then we saw this but there's stuff in between all that that in essence serves as as a distraction because while you know before you have time to process this gangbuster thing or the, or the reason why clark is always tired or the fact that he was wet now over to lois or now over to jimmy or now over to the kents or the, and you just forget about it it's it, it really does distract you in addition to providing a story for those characters as well which have their own mysteries that will be solved down the road so you know again the storytelling here becomes more sophisticated than we've seen from from superman comics in in, in past eras um and it allows them to tell different kinds of stories and and again be more experimental like that you had mentioned uh earlier in the episode that you know there were occasionally some hiccups with the style of storytelling i don't i don't think that this actually falls into that category because i i don't i don't really say this in a critical way i think it was necessary especially that this was a different way of of telling like almost almost a weekly superman story at this point um there like there's a lot of recapping in the issues like i know especially as we got deeper into it it was like and so sometimes like multiple pages where like Superman is thinking about everything that's been going on. And it's like, I know I just read the issue of Superman that came before I know. <laughs> but again, I do think it's, it's, you know, um, and again, like these days in comics, you know, we have recap pages and things like that. We, you know, you didn't have something like that. Um, so it was fine. I do think it was, you know, a, a necessary evil and it wasn't anything horrible, but I did, I did clock that. I was like, we get an awful lot of, <laughs> of recapping what's, what's gone on, you know, the week or two prior. We do, and and that's also a product of the time where uh, you know, as you have the proliferation of, you know, a Superman family of titles, the expectation that you know any issue, any of these could have been somebody's first, and so they're jumping. In. Imagine jumping in somewhere in the middle of these fifty-three issues. I mean, even jumping in where we jumped in without having the benefit of, for me anyway, I I hadn't read or reread you know, from the beginning of that burn era until here. So sometimes those recaps were actually really helpful because I was jumping in in the middle. Once I got into the middle of our reading, I started finding uh, less and less use for the, for the recaps because, <laughs> because I, I had just read it. Um, but I read them, I may have read them a little bit more quickly, uh, with the understanding that I know why they're here, right? I know I, I know what the the philosophy behind this was. So if I have to, you know, read a page and a half of recap, uh, you know, I'll suck it up. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. You know, I, I've had a lot going on, and it's been a lot of issues to get through. And there were times where I was actually grateful for it because I, you know, especially if I had been up reading these issues like very late the night before, and then I started again the next day. You know, sometimes it wasn't the worst thing to get a little, a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of that recap. Uh, let's take a quick commercial break and then we will continue our discussion. So we will be right back. If you enjoy this show, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. I also hope you'll consider joining my Patreon community. The support of my patrons enables me to produce this podcast and patrons get rewards too, including exclusive episodes, advanced listens, and more. Sign up today and get instant access to the back catalog. Visit patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. 
Thank you to all of my patrons. I truly appreciate your support. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On To Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In The Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Finally, the next time you go to place an order at bcwsupplies.com, be sure to use the promo code FSP, that's for Flat Squirrel Productions, uh, to save 10% on your order and support Digging for Kryptonite. Uh, So again, use promo code FSP the next time you order from bcwsupplies.com. All right, so we are back here. Scott, are you you a fan of The Honeymooners, the classic 1950s sitcom? (laughs) So what's funny is uh, I did not grow up uh, in the fifties. I grew up in mostly the eighties and nineties. However, my parents did grow up in the fifties. And so they sort of raised me on fifties, sixties and seventies sitcoms. And so I've seen my fair share of the honeymooners. I liked it as a kid. Now that I'm an adult, you know, it's not as easy to watch, but, uh, but I, I like aspects of it. Okay. Fair enough. So it has long been a favorite of mine. It, I, I do watch it every, uh, new year's Eve, and it, it is one of it is one of my all time favorites. So I was delighted when uh, Draga needs transport to Earth to get his revenge on Superman and his driver. He has a cab, but then his his larger ship resembles a bus. So basically, we have an outer space bus driver named Cramden, and it's spelled in an alien way, but it's Cramden. And he has a wife named Alice. And whenever he gets nervous, he says "humana humana humana." I was very, I was very delighted by that. That really tickled me. Yeah, at one point he even uh, says that if his wife, uh, he would go home and tell his wife that he would send her to the moon, right? Yes. Now the to the moon part is the aspect of the honeymooners that has not aged well, but uh, but never, no. nevertheless, uh, it, it's so it's so near and dear to me. I love that show and I loved that reference. Uh, you know, another another thing that that did make me laugh, and they they really played with it a lot in Action Six Fifty appropriately. But the cab fare in Metropolis is always 650. Even before we got to Action 650, where they really had a lot of fun with that, uh, I did I did notice that as as I was making my way through. And I think even in some of the burn issues too. I mean, it was like oh, like 650 is like a standard fare no matter where you're going in Metropolis. <laughs> I know, and in one of the and one of the the last issues that we read uh, when the the Kents <laughs> yeah, go to yeah, Metropolis, yeah. you know, Jonathan Kent even gripes about 650 being highway robbery, and and I'm thinking. I would love to take a cab ride in New York for, for six fifty. <laughs> yeah, it, it is very funny. So, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to, to address is, and this is a theme has been, and I think will continue to be a theme in, in this run of episodes where 
you know, again, like I said before, I'm seeing the groundwork that's being laid for future storylines, including the death of, of Superman and, and the subsequent uh, years. And so it's cool to see, you know, a number of those connection points. Uh, for example, you know, he, Superman has this psychotic break and he, he poses as gangbuster. When we get to Reign of the Supermen, when these four replacement Supermen show up and two of them purport to be the real deal, it makes a lot more sense now that among, you know, you know, among like our core cast, it's like there is a little bit of a question of like maybe one of them is because he has this history of pretending to be somebody else. So, you know, that really rang true. And then, um, you know, of course, and we'll talk about this when we get to, to Reign of the Superman, but, you know, Mongol plays a key, a key role in that storyline. And, it, you know, when I read that as a kid, it's like, okay, like obviously he's a bad guy and he destroys Coast City, but it's like now, well, you see that, you know, Superman inspired this rebellion on Warworld and, you know, Mongol actually suffered for it. So the fact that he emerges as, you know, one of the villains of Reign of the Superman, like that now has added weight to it. And I'm so excited to get back to that story now with this history. So, you know, stuff like that. Oh, I mean, I'm not to mention the Eradicator. And I know we have a lot more to talk about there. <laughs> Hank Henshaw. Hank Henshaw has a couple of brief appearances here where they're on the space shuttle and they're doing these radiation experiments. So it's like all this stuff to, to see it introduced, uh, you know, was really cool and definitely... I know, and that was the reason I structured these episodes this way, but I know when I get to death, funeral, reign, and return, I'm going to get a lot more out of it now because I have all of this context. No, I feel the same way. I mean, I remember reading the death of, uh, of Superman and then, and then following it into, you know, the four replacement Superman, Superman, and the Eradicator to me was a brand new character and concept at that time, had no idea, just figured it was it was one of those four never mentioned before that so to see that not only is it mentioned but it occupies i want to say i want to say the majority of the main plot for i'd say the back three quarters of what we read i mean it's a huge ongoing thing when just when you think it's it's over and done and settled it comes back and it comes back and it comes back and the last we see of it is he sort of rat you know thinks he's destroyed it or at least rendered it a nerd and he wraps it up in his cape and he kind of, you know, takes it out into space and tosses it, I think, into the, into a sun. Or and you're like, well, that's got to be the end, right? But it's it's years later, right? It's not even just that it, it, it immediately is going to follow because we know that it's going to be years later that they pick up on it in the form of the Eradicator, the character, as opposed to the device. So, yeah, it was really, really cool seeing the the seeds planted for this. And speaking of Eradicator specifically, uh, r remind me, did you watch Superman and Lois? I did. I don't remember it all that well, but I did. Oh, okay. So because the, and as of, as of this recording, Oh, I'm sorry. Superman and Lois. Yeah, not, not, not I thought Lois you said Lois and Clark. No, no. Um, I've seen the first five episodes of Superman. And Lois. Okay. So, I was, <laughs> I was going to say, Scott, it's pretty recent. I think. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, those I remember. For some reason, it registered as Lois and Clark. No, uh, yeah, I've seen the first five episodes. Okay, I won't spoil anything. Um, by the time this episode comes out, the season will have just finished. As of this recording, there's still a couple episodes left. And again, I won't get into heavy spoilers, other than to say that the Eradicator plays a big role 
in the season. And so the, the timing is very serendipitous that we're, we're, you know, we're covering these issues just as the Eradicator, you know, gets its live action adaptation. It's really, really cool. What I loved about the Eradicator was, other than the connection to Death of Superman, that was cool. But what I really liked was, and I've talked about this on the previous episodes, what I didn't like about Burns' Man of Steel and his take on Superman generally, as much as there was a lot I did like, but what I didn't like was that, um, you know, the emphasis was was placed so much on the human side, but the Kryptonian side was really cast aside. And I know that was obviously clearly a, a choice, you know, but at the end of Man of Steel, Clark, you know, he, he gets all of these images and all this information and history about Krypton and basically just comes to the conclusion, well, you know, it's it's a world I'll never know. I was born on Earth. I'm a human. And that's kind of it. But what I loved about this was we start to now kind of bridge, bridge his two worlds. And there, I forget which, you know, which title it was, but there was a really a cool moment that I thought really reconciled all of this where Superman is thinking to himself, you know, I never really felt much of a connection because it was a world that I thought I would never get to know. But now I have a tangible connection to it. And so that kind of changes the equation for him a little bit. And so I thought that was a great way to still, you know, sort of respect what had been laid out post-crisis, but now to sort of kind of move forward a little bit. Because I do, and I know I say this a lot, but I, I do genuinely think having some, there needs to be some tension there between the the human and the Kryptonian sides. I just think for dramatic purposes, it's interesting. No, I, I completely agree. I think you get better stories when you can explore different facets of the personality. Um, I also liked, uh, you know, the fact that not only did he have the Eradicator, which I think by itself, yeah, it's a it's a relic from Krypton, but I don't know that it would have done the job in terms of the story on its own. But the fact that, as you mentioned, it, it creates for him a new fortress. And not only is it just sort of, you know, the, the Antarctic fortress, but at the core of it, at the center of it structurally, are these giant effigies of Jor-El and Lara holding up Krypton, right? Um, so there is this, this tribute to his specific lineage, not only, you know, not the, not just the world at large, but, but his specific lineage and the fact that he's able to learn about the planet as a whole, his role in it, his parents struggle in it, get close to that, I think is so meaningful and, and, and expands the stories in this particular era that in ways that you said, as you said, burn chose not to, for whatever reason. Um, I, I, like you, I really appreciated that development. Do you know if there's ever been a, a prop made of the Eradicator or toy or anything? Cause I can't think of anything, but as I was reading these issues, <laughs> I just kept saying, I was like, man, I would love to own the Eradicator. <laughs> as far as I know, I don't think they've done one, but, but I'll, I'll double check. I, I bet someone out there has done one, but I don't think there's been like a mass market production of it. Yeah. Well, so you know, I know we've been talking about the Eradicator a lot, and yes, it is this Kryptonian device, and, uh, you know, it it debuts towards the end of the Exile storyline. Uh, Superman encounters this ancient prophet named the Cleric, and he has been in possession of the Eradicator, and and we get, through through the end of that storyline and, and the subsequent Eradicator issues, we get a bit more of the Kryptonian history fleshed out here. So, basically... 
Uh, and Byrne had done a lot with this in setting up the world of Krypton, and specifically in that world of Krypton miniseries. And basically, you know, there was this uh, tension. The Kryptonians would, you know, grow clones and use them for replacement parts. Basically, it led to this huge civil war between those who thought that that was an abomination, you know, versus, um, you know, the more of the, you know, proponents of science. And so we find out that the cleric, uh, you know, uh, visited Krypton and, and preached against, you know, the, the evils of cloning and that the scientists, you know, created this device, specifically Kamel, an ancestor of Kal-El, created this eradicator weapon. Of course, it's more than just a weapon, but, uh, you know, it did create this explosion and it also bound the Kryptonians to Krypton such that they would die if they left. And that's ultimately what happens when the cleric takes a bunch of his followers away from Krypton. They sadly perish in the ship. And again, overall, this idea that the Eradicator is trying to preserve the legacy of, of Krypton. Um, but so it bound the Kryptonians to the planet and it was only due to Jor-El's machinations that he was able to remove that, uh, that limitation so that Kal-El could leave um, and it also made it such that outsiders would not be able to survive on Krypton. So it really plays into this whole xenophobia um, aspect on Krypton, which is interesting, and in that they really wanted to keep Krypton, you know, Krypton pure and free of outside influence, especially after this prophet, the cleric, had, you know, kind of got everyone uh, up in arms about the cloning. So, you know, you get all that, and so the cleric, you know, gives Superman the Eradicator at the end of that storyline, and it um, creates a new a new costume for him. Uh, which ultimately he has to uh, discard at the end of the Day of the Krypton Man storyline uh, when he you know, was totally finally free of the Eradicator's influence. But that was interesting too because you know, for the first time it wasn't just that you know, his, his costume wasn't getting destroyed because of the aura around him, but he actually had a stronger costume and the cape now was finally staying intact. Uh, and of course, again, he loses it at the end of that Day of the Krypton Man storyline. But anyway... The, the Eradicator, again, I think it was, it really helped flesh out the history of Krypton, and um, and it was that tangible connection, and and yes, it was it was literally a plot device. I mean, it, it was responsible for all those things we talked about, but yeah, it was, I, I was really there. I was really, I was really intrigued by it. What about you? Yeah, I, the, the thing I like the most about it is that it's not just a plot device, but it's specifically that, that classic monkey's paw. You know, it's, he, he's, Kellel is so excited about about having this, as you said, tangible tie to Krypton. This thing that will allow him to learn more about his Kryptonian side, right? To 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 have a connection that he never had before. But then you watch as it just keeps going wrong and wrong and wrong, and in more ways, right? I mean, the, the first we see of it is, you know, it it, it is uh, presumed by Doctor Emil Hamilton that uh, that the the Eradicator is responsible for somehow altering Jimmy Olsen's, you know, body chemistry, DNA, something. And he becomes this stretchy guy, but it's, but it's not even just the, the silliness of the silver age divide, right? Cause that's a silver age, yeah. you know, carryover, but it's physically excruciatingly painful for him. You know, Superman's trying to kind of hold him together. And, you know, every time he touches him at the points of, of contact, Jimmy is, is screaming in agony. Um, so it's, it's what, what at first seems to be kind of funny and in the silver age, it would have been now has a, has a weight to it, an emotional weight to it. You know, it, it is a, it's a point of conflict and that becomes, a, you know, that relationship between Jimmy and, and Superman becomes severely damaged as a result of the Eradicator's influence because, uh, you know, 
Jimmy begins to resent Superman, number one, for doing this to him in the first place, but then also for not making it his number one priority to to fix it. Um, and we understand why he can't, right? I mean, he is in service to the entire world, um, and he can't just stick around and, and focus on the problems of, of one guy, but it's his best out. So Jimmy, I think, is justified in, in thinking that, you know, listen, before you start running off and, you know, dealing with that tsunami which is one you know a, a thing that happens right can you can we figure this out first please and uh, and he becomes really resentful uh, and it's and that is not resolved by the time that we finish these issues that's right i know i i was going to say that i mean that was uh yeah that was unexpected and i like that a lot i mean it, it's you know i think it's a, a dynamic that we've really not you know, seen explored prior. I mean, there's really, I mean, you know, these events really do drive a wedge between Superman and his pal. And, you know, I think it's, it's in part attributable to uh, the Eradicator's influence because this, you know, and there is also a lot of tension between Superman and Dr. Hamilton where Hamilton's like yeah. constantly calling him out. He's like, why weren't you here sooner? Like, this is your friend. Uh, and again, the word logical gets thrown around, you know, a, a lot there too. But you know, I'm 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 looking forward to seeing how it is resolved in the subsequent issues, um, but it was cool to see that come into play. Uh, as I talked about this in previous issues, I felt like the immediate post-crisis Jimmy, I don't know, wasn't didn't really offer that much more than we had seen before, and I feel like in these issues we're really actually fleshing that character out. I mean, ironically, like you said, you know, pulling in some of these Silver Age callbacks, like the, you know, the stretching, but really moving the character forward. And then he gets involved with Project Cadmus. I mean, there's so much going on in these issues. Um, and we find out that his father, long thought dead, had actually been military liaison to Project Cadmus um, and then had been captured and killed, but also cloned. And Jimmy's mother goes looking for him. She gets captured. Jimmy finally rescues her by the end of the issues that we read. Uh, Jimmy teams up with the Guardian and the Newsboy Legion. Like, there's all, I mean, there's all, there's a ton of stuff going on. But at the end of the day, I mean, that that genuine tension there uh, between Superman and Jimmy. Uh, yeah, I w it was really cool to see that play out. Uh, and like I said, I'm I'm excited to see how they how they get how they get past that. No, I agree. And that tension carries over also in Jimmy's relationship with Clark. Yeah. Right? Because, because Clark is becoming colder and colder toward the people in his life as the Eradicator's influence, uh, you know, deepens. So you're, you're, wa you're watching Jimmy Olsen now lose connection with essentially his two best friends who are essentially, you know, we know the same person. And you really feel for the guy. I mean, he's not only is he dealing with his own stuff, his hair falls out, for God's sake. You know, he gets stuck in this colorless void, this dimension where he's sort of besieged by these you know, monsters before he can finally find a way to escape. I mean, he really kind of is, is dragged through the mud in these in these stories. Um, and and at the core of it, the thing that that means the most, at least to me as a, as a reader, was that he didn't feel like he had anybody to turn to. To to, you know, I mean, he turns to Emil Hamilton, who basically throws him in a glass tube for several days and then has no sympathy when he's like, I'm really bored. And I don't want to be in here anymore. You know, so he's upset about that. And, and, and Clark and or Superman would be the people he turned to and he doesn't have them. It's, you know, I, I, I really felt a lot of sympathy for Jimmy. In these issues. As, as did I. And, you know, I mentioned the Project Cadmus 
it's funny because we you know i think as fans you know there's the characters and concepts that we like and characters and concepts we don't you know in prior episodes i talked about how like i'm just not a fan of silver banshee and so i think actually the first issue of superman that we read as part of this was her her origin and that was fine i've just and i couldn't tell you why i just I've, it's never you know the the character has never done anything for me project cadmus on the other hand i love I've always been a fan, I guess, because they played a large role in the in the immediate post death of Superman period. Uh, and may, I don't know, maybe that's why. But so it was cool to see those those characters get some play. Um, you know, we talked about you know Superman. So Superman, you know, obviously is clearly under the influence of the Eradicator in the the latter issues that we read. And again, it starts small. Like there are these little references to him. You know, oh, it's logical. You know, things like that. And then it 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 builds and then it's so clear that something's wrong with him. Um, but I wanted to get your take on going back to the, the gangbuster in, you know, episode. Um, I wanted to get your take. What was your reading on, um, the extent to which Brainiac was responsible for this psychotic break? Because Superman has a couple of battles with the Milton Fine incarnation of, of Brainiac before all the gangbuster stuff starts. And in one of those encounters, you know, Brainiac is messing with his mind and, and bringing up his, you know, his dark side and, and, and things like that. And then in later issues, when we deal with Brainiac again, Superman is kind of like recapping everything and, and reflecting on, um, you know, on those battles with Brainiac. And I guess what what was your take? I mean, because I have an opinion on it, but I, I, wanted, I wanted to get your take. I mean, to what extent was Brainiac responsible for the gangbuster uh you know, episode. So I don't know that I, I certainly didn't connect them at first. Um, because again, I, that first Brainiac issue felt like a one-off. Again, we had a silver Banshee issue, a rampage issue, and then we had this Brainiac issue. So, you know, I wasn't really connecting it to the larger story because there really wasn't a lot of that continuity in those first couple issues leading up to exile. Um, so I didn't expect I didn't expect Brainiac to be the big deal that he ended up being. I mean, he's got a he's got a trilogy coming up, you know, at post exile. So um, so I I don't think I really put a whole lot of mental weight behind that connection. What I did find interesting as Brainiac developed into a much more serious threat. Of course, you know, we we end up finding then finding out that he's essentially the the disembodied consciousness of the Kaluan Vraldox, who you know was presumed dead, but sent his consciousness out into the ether, and it ended up in Milton Fine's body. Um, that you know, we always think of Superman as having two weaknesses, right? It's kryptonite and it's magic. But psionics also seem to be a bit of a soft spot for him, right? I mean, he does; he has a mind. He's not, you know, he doesn't particularly protect himself from that so anybody who has any sort of mental manipulation seems like they can they can get to superman so looking back on it now it seems as though it's as good a reason as any to explain why he ends up having the psychotic break that leads to gangbuster but i don't know that i saw a direct correlation at least at first okay so i i you know i'd be curious to get other takes on this as well you know if anyone has an opinion because i don't know i think it I think it's left kind of open. I mean, I don't think it was an accident that they, that it came up again after, you know, Superman returned to Earth. I guess my preference 
I don't, I don't really, I don't necessarily like the idea. If the intention was that the battle with Brainiac, you know, facilitated this break, I don't know that I quite love that. I think, I, I, I think it's, it's vastly more interesting if it was truly the guilt that drove Superman over the edge. Also, I'll use another DC character as an example. You know, when Hal Jordan became Parallax, he murdered the Guardians and the rest of the Green Lantern Corps. So in order to reinstate him as a hero in Green Lantern Rebirth, it had to have been that he was manipulated. It couldn't be that he just lost it, right? Otherwise, I don't think there's any way to really redeem the character. Here, you know, when Superman is acting as gangbuster, he's rougher, but he doesn't kill anybody. You know, he doesn't do anything that, you know, can't be taken back. So I don't think you need to give him an out. Um, you know, again, at the same time, just given the way the stories unfold, I mean, I, I, I do think my gut is that the intention was that the, you know, the Brainiac manipulation played a role. I guess if I had to make a ruling on it, I think it was maybe, you know, I don't know, necessary, but not sufficient. Like, I don't think the absent the guilt, I don't think that, you know, the battle with Brainiac would have led to that break. Um, but had that battle with Brainiac not happened, I don't know that he goes that far as to become gangbuster and not realize it. That's kind of where, where. I, but again, big picture, I just, I don't, you know, I, I like the, I really just like the idea that the guilt, you know, kind of tore him up and he, and he did this. So maybe, maybe a reasonable compromise is that Brainiac's attack, you know, sort of softened him up, made him more susceptible yeah. to his own guilt Whereas before that, he, he the guilt may not have caused a full psychotic break, but it's still there and it's very powerful. This just pushed it over the edge. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go with that. Uh, you know, we talked before about, you know, the, some of the subplots. Was there anything more scintillating than Lex's hostile takeover of, or potential hostile takeover? I actually, I was, I was there for that, man. I thought that was pretty good. So what's interesting is that, so it's a backup feature across like three or four different issues where the, the main story is like the first 18 pages and they get like a four page or so Lex Luther hostile takeover. It's not in the exile trade. The, the hostile takeover uh -huh. stories are not included. So it was only when I went back to the app and I actually saw the covers that advertise at the bottom. There's, you know, the banner that says that there's this other story. So I had to go into the app and actually read the hostile takeover thing. Um, I loved that. I thought that was really, really cool, especially because, you know, we know that when Byrne took over Superman, he took what, you know, the Lex Luthor character, which had typically been portrayed as sort of the mad scientist type in the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s, and and gave him a makeover for the 80s, right? The, the Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, greed is good, you know, uh, model where he's this ruthless businessman. He's a genius still, um, but instead of creating tech himself, he generally shells out money to various scientists or organizations who kind of do it for him. Um, and I love that take. I love that take, and it's certainly as relevant now as it as it was then. Um, but um, I thought it was a really interesting storyline. But I couldn't help thinking, would I have liked that as a twelve year old? You know. It's, I mean, it's, it's essentially corporate manipulation, right? Stock market manipulation. I don't know that I would have gotten it or enjoyed it, but I was reading it now. So I thought it was great. It's, it's so funny you say that because I had a very similar thought because, 
you know, the, the premise of it is that he wants this psionics lab that Star Labs owns so that he can study Brainiac, who he currently has in captivity. And so over the course of, you know, these few issues, you know, he teases a potential takeover of Star Labs. And, uh, you know, it drives up the stock price. But anyway, he, he's got it all planned out. And basically, he anticipates that Star Labs will recognize that Lex wants Star Labs for that psionics lab. So they decide to sell it such that, you know, Lex won't want anything to do with what's left of Star Labs. He just wants that other piece. But Lex is so clever that he set up this dummy corporation to, to, to be the purchaser of that psionics lab. But on top of all of that, like they even go so far as to get into the poison pill, like Star Labs issues all these additional shares. <laughs> I was reading it. And, you know, I'm going back to my corporations class from law school and I'm like, I can't believe like they're getting this in the weeds <laughs> on it. <laughs> it was so funny. But to your point, it's like, yeah, I don't know for a kid reading at the time. I mean, I don't, I mean, I found it interesting. The, you know what I like more than anything else? And I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I like that you actually got to see how Lex went about his business in a, in a deeper way than, you know, him just directing, you know, his doctors to study Brainiac. Like you actually got to see how he did business. It was pretty cool. I agree. I, I, I thought that was, I, I, again, I love businessman Lex. That's my favorite interpretation of the character. I will say I didn't love the visual Lex in here for, 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 He's he's just sort of like doughier yeah. than than I prefer my Lex to be. And I think, you know, Burns sort of started that and these artists are just, you know, picking up from that. So I don't actually blame the artists here. I if, I mean if there's blame to you know to 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 cast it would be on Burn, but you know, I like a sort of svelte Lex Luthor who is in his own way physically imposing as well as a you know a, a cerebral threat. Um, that's just me personally. No, and I, because I, I did notice, I mean, and they, uh, numerous characters refer to him as Fat Man, the Fat Man, and yeah. it just made me think of Kingpin. I mean, he's not drawn that large, but it was kind of like in that vein. And no, I'm with you. I do like a more physically imposing Lex. And later on, we will get that. Certainly when he's posing as his own son, Lex Luthor II. Um, and then after his clone body is rejuvenated in the Underworld Unleashed storyline in the late 90s, you know, then he is the physically fit Lex. And, and I do think that is more uh, effective. Um, but yeah, I did clock that myself. Um, just the way he was depicted and the numerous references to him as, as Fat Man. Uh, but yeah, the hostile takeover subplot, that was cool. I know you were not a huge fan of the Mixius Pitalik issue where Lex has to defend the city. Um, and, you know, was it my favorite issue of the run? No, but I kind of I like the idea that absent Superman, it fell on Lex. And I also love that Lex basically missed Superman when he was in space. Like he missed having that, you know, that sparring partner there. So um, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it did bring out an aspect of Lex that I often enjoy. And they, I'm going to make a very strange analogy, but they, they kind of touched on it in the Lego Batman movie. Um, when essentially the, the, the Lego Joker, you know, uh, tries to make the case that, you know, Batman isn't Batman without the Joker, right? And the Joker isn't the Joker without Batman, right? They need each other. They're the yin and the yang. And, and I think Lex sees himself and Superman in much the same way. I think he really, he really sees Superman as that necessary foil. And without, without Superman, he's sort of that, that proverbial general without a war to fight. Um, and to that point, I mean, 
he, he won't even allow anybody else to be the one to finally defeat Superman. It's got to be him. I mean, he stopped somebody. I can't, I'm trying to remember who. Well, but somebody was about to kill him. Well, so they recapped this. So this might be what you're referring to. Okay. But in Maybe Superman number one, <laughs> number one, <laughs> I mean, Metallo's got Superman on the ropes. And then Lex intervenes and, and takes him away because he's like, no, like, it, you know, that's an, you know, that's that's for me to do. Uh, you know, so that's going back to the first issue. And they do reference that here because, you know, Metallo does come back and ends up working with Brainiac. I mean, yeah, that the, the Brainiac storyline and the Brainiac Luther piece uh, that gets a lot of play. And like you said, there is that three part story in action, the Brainiac trilogy, where by the end of that storyline, we end up with the visual representation of Brainiac that will will be with for the rest of the 90s uh, where it's the body of Milton Fine, but now genetically modified and, and green and enhanced. And uh, he he builds a ship, the design for which came to him in a dream, a Silver Age dream, because uh, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it resembles the Silver Age uh, Brainiac. And, and the last we see of him in this run, he's heading off into space, but obviously he'll come back. And I think it, I think it's the Panic in the Sky storyline that, that we still have coming up where, he, where that's a big Brainiac story. While we're, while we're talking Lex, uh, I, I want to shift to another L, Lois. I One of the big surprises for me in this reading project thus far, the burn stuff and what we read for this episode, was how little development the Lois and Clark relationship has. And it's surprising to me because, you know, we, we're, we the last issue of Superman that we read for this episode is number 43, you know, by 73, you know, the beginning part of the Death of Superman storyline, you know, they're engaged to be married. They're not anywhere even close to that. And I, I know we have, you know, I know, you know, besides, you know, we have multiple Superman titles and I know we have a long way to go, but not a ton between them. I, it was very surprising to me. What about you? Yeah, I, I expected to see the relationship at least partly already in motion. Right. I, I expected there to be some sort of romance, but no, I mean, they're friends and they're colleagues. Um, and there are even a couple of mentions where she says like, man, I never really thought about Clark in that way, but I guess he's like a, you know, he's a decent guy. And, you know, there is that. And of course they, they certainly move farther apart as Clark falls victim to the eradicator. And, you know, he's, he's at this point, he's working for a, a rival publication, Newstime magazine. And he runs into Lois on the street and she's like, hey, you want to, you know, get a cup of coffee? And he's like, no, I really have no use for any relationships from that former, you know, the, my former job. And she is just floored by the fact that he's so dismissive because it just seems like he's he's saying that if we're not working together, then we have no no relationship whatsoever. Um, and she dismisses him. I mean, as as she should. Again, I her motivation there is perfectly understandable, perfectly reasonable. But when he is restored and he comes back, I thought that she kind of took him back into her life a little too easily considering how hard he blew her off. Yeah. You know, I, and when, when she ran into him on the street, when he was no longer working for the planet, but he was under the influence of the eradicator, I, I might be mixing this up, but I think that was when she offered to cook him dinner Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're Which, right. you know, reading that, I was like, 
That was, I mean, I don't know, like that was pretty forward. I mean, she invites him over to her place and she's going to cook him dinner. And, and that's when he, you know, he brushes her off under the influence of the eradicator. When they make up, when he returns to the planet and he's no longer eradicated, um, I, you know, it's interesting because I, overall, I agree with you. It's like, I was surprised that she accepted his apology, but I liked it. I, I felt like, you know, he was genuine with her. He was like, you know, I really wasn't myself. I was pushing everyone away, including my parents. And I think it would have been expected for her to be like, well, too bad. Like you had your chance and you blew it. I actually, I didn't look at it. Like I didn't think that, oh, she's weak for, you know, accepting his apology. I just felt like he was so genuine in the moment. I like that they, and they, I think they embrace, like I, I thought that was cool. But, you know, overall with this run, um, and I felt this way reading the burn stuff too. I was like really surprised that, you know, it was really for the most part, tense between the two of them, you know, the rivalry, the fact that he scooped her on the Superman story, like there was a lot of stuff like that. And the beginning part of this run kind of wraps up her her non-starter of a romance with Jose Delgado. But I, I'll be honest, I feel like they sort of reversed course because in the in the previous, and we talked about this in the, in the in the a couple episodes ago. I feel like towards the end of the burn era, I mean, it seemed like it was going in a direction with Jose. And then I felt like they really pivoted away from that pretty quickly here. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you still didn't get a ton between the two of them. Um, I guess when, when Superman's off world and Matrix is posing as Clark, um, and, or I guess even before that, um, when uh, a body is found in Clark's apartment, right? Because Inner Gang has put a hit out on Clark. Again, there's a lot going on in these issues. Inner Gang yes. has put a hit out on Clark. They end up mistakenly killing the PI that Amanda McCoy had hired, but it, it seems like it's Clark. So there's this period of time where, the, where everyone thinks Clark is dead or might be dead. And I think it's at that point, like Lois starts to warm to the idea of him and she realizes that she had kind of taken him for granted. And then when, quote unquote, Clark returns, it's Matrix posing as Clark and, you know, he doesn't know what's going on and has like a childlike intellect and so you know clearly they they kind of hit a wall there and then later on like like you were talking about when he's under the influence of the eradicator it's like any instance where like she's starting to maybe feel something for him you know it's either not him or you know he's under the influence of something so again it was just surprising i mean i'm I'm really intrigued to see how this relationship develops because I feel like they have a lot of ground to cover in in an increasingly short period of time. They do. I mean, to be fair, I mean between issues issue forty three where we leave off and seventy three when, yeah. when the death of Superman happens. I mean, that's going to be like two and a half years, our time of stories, which is not an unreasonable amount of time considering what we just finished with was them agreeing essentially to go on their first date of, right. of a kind, right? Yeah. Um, but, but when you, you know, when you outline how many times she has opened herself up to the idea of, of maybe romantically being involved with Clark and how many times there's a major barrier to that. And it's always Clark. It's never her. It's always him. That's why it's not that I see her as weak for taking for agreeing to just sort of open herself up to him again at the end of these issues it's that i can't imagine how anybody would want to be involved with someone who's that inconsistent who you know like when he's good he's great but when he's not he is all over the place he's just a complete mystery and so i 
I don't know that I'd want to be with anybody who is a child one day, dead, missing another, then back, then really cold and distant, who's always disappearing. You know, I mean, that's that's always been a staple of the of the Superman Lois relationship. You know, they're following the lead of a story and something big happens and he runs off to be Superman and she's looking around like, where the heck did Clark go? You know, I, I just to me, it just seemed like a bridge too far for her to to do that. Uh, you know, your your point is well taken. I do think that, you know, that we've had other instances and actually Superman and Lois, when you get to this episode, because uh, they they do a flashback episode where you get to see the the very beginnings of their relationship. I know there there's some snippets in the pilot, but there there's a later episode that spends a lot more time there. And you, I mean, it's a version of the story where you all the questions that you just raised are not there. It's like you watch that episode, and it's like, oh, like man, you see why Lois would fall in love with Clark, and by, so you know, yeah, I think there are other depictions of this romance that track a little bit better. I think that yeah, when you do look at all of this in sum, it's kind of like yeah, I, it, it is a little, it is a little questionable. But again, it was a surprise of mine to see how little development really the romance had, uh, and I'm curious to see where it goes. You know, uh, as yeah, as we're moving forward. Uh, what else about this run, particularly anything that we haven't talked about yet that uh, you might you might have in your notes there? Um, okay, so <laughs> um, I really enjoy seeing the first appearance of Maxima because mm. I know she she becomes a, a Justice Leaguer in the you know in the next couple of years, and to see her appear as this this alien woman who is such a superior specimen, you know, in her, in her own mind. And, and to be fair, fairly objectively, I think she is right. She's beautiful. She's powerful. She's confident. She's got a lot going for her and she's scouring the universe for a, a, a male being, right. Still in sort of traditional gender roles here, but um, you know, binary thinking, but she's looking for a male counterpart who's every bit, the paragon that she is and she happens upon the superman of earth and she wants to make him hers and so she sends this scout ahead of her right which is a simulacrum of herself right a, a sort of a, a you know copy of herself along with an emissary sazu and they are basically they're basically going to if he won't go along with this they're just going to take him uh, you know, and he fights back, and then eventually Maxima herself actually, you know, makes herself known, and and it's the same thing. And she and Superman sort of fight a little bit, but you know, it resolves itself. And it was interesting to see this portrayal of the character. And again, I'm trying to figure out what what could possibly happen between now and when she becomes a Justice Leaguer because she's she's pretty terrible. <laughs> It's it's true. And uh, yeah, because I guess the version of the character I met as a reader, you know, was was an ally, you know, even if it was a little tenuous. Uh, so, yeah, it was definitely cool to see the the beginnings of that. She was not as, you know, I don't know, maybe I was conflating her a little bit with the character Obsession. Do you remember Obsession from later in the 90s? She lived up to her name and was obsessed and in love with Superman. I don't. And I feel like I might have been conflating them a little bit because, um, I, you know, yeah, I mean, Maxima definitely is, a, you know, projects strength, you know, I, I feel above all else. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting to see her. I'm glad you brought up Maxima because I'm kind of on the note of, you know, I, I, I don't know, I guess Superman's place in the DC universe. We have a couple of other 
uh, appearances. My buddy and and uh, previous podcast guest would kill me if I didn't mention Lobo. Uh, so Justin DeVoe oh, yeah. is a shout out to Justin. It's his favorite character. Uh, so you know Lobo appears here, uh, trying to take out Superman, and they fight at the at the fortress with with Bibbo uh, along for the ride. <laughs> and we call it Yo Yo. Yeah, and they're just wasted. They're just like the entire time. They're just wasted. There's also was this his first uh, post crisis? This was first appearance or. Not first oh, yeah. appearance. Um, I don't first uh... first interaction with Superman, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, beyond that, though, uh, yeah. I, I, I'll be honest. I'm not particularly well versed in the history of Lobo necessarily, so I know it's not his first appearance, and I don't think it's even his first post crisis appearance. But yeah, definitely first, uh, as far as I know, you know, in, interaction with Superman post crisis. Um, we also get an issue where Mixius Pitalik uh, forces uh, the Flash and Superman to race. You know, that was really cool because, and I and I know you're a fellow fan of the Jeff Johns run on The Flash. The Mark Wade run, too? I haven't read the whole Mark Wade okay. run. Neither have I, actually, but that's, that's going to be changing on this podcast, by the way. We'll get back to that later. But, um, you know, those, those two writers in particular, you know, they did, they did so much to have, to, you know, evolve Wally and to actually have him grow into the role. But this was cool to see because this was a, a Wally earlier in his journey. I was still struggling under the shadow of Barry Allen, still trying to prove himself a little bit more of a hothead. And, uh, and, you know, so he has this race with Superman and he like wins by a hair and, uh, which I'm, I'm glad for, I'm, I always have the opinion that it's his one thing he should be faster um, but that was cool, and it was, I, I enjoyed that dynamic uh, between the two of them in that issue. Yeah, if you're going to do a one-off, that's the way to do it, I think. You know, I, and and I enjoyed that Mixes Pitalik appearance a lot more than I enjoyed the other one during Exile. So, uh, you know, getting to see a couple of the other Justice Leaguers as they're watching the race, sort of weighing in on, you know, some of them have more of a relationship with Wally. Some of them have more of a relationship with. With Superman, and so to see where they where they stand is is really fun. Um, I, I also thought Superman was really hard on on Wally. Yes. I mean, at one point they're racing, and he says, "Like you know, you seem to be talking about Barry a lot." Well, just so you know, like you've got huge shoes to fill. Like that's a that's a dick move, right there. Yeah, he was very condescending to Barry. Yeah, I um I I I and that was the point though. He was. Right, he was under the influence of the Eradicator at that point, but not like all the. Because again, there was definitely this progression. So I don't know. I guess like anything in those preceding issues to the Krypton Man storyline, anything that was kind of a little bit off, I guess you could chalk up to that. But uh, yeah, I definitely, I definitely had that thought as well. It's like, hey, you really are a dick, this poor poor kid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, speaking of the, you know, the Krypton Man. um, Just visually speaking, what did you think of that? uh, The 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 red and black Kryptonian outfit. Look, as far as the burn redesigns for everything Krypton, um, it it makes a lot of sense. You know, that's that's essentially what we see Jor-El and Lara wearing in those flashback scenes, and you know the way that they're depicted. So it's a it's a it's a really neat visual way to signal to the reader that what's happening in Clark's mind is more Kryptonian than it is um so just in terms of like a cartooning shorthand i thought it worked beautifully especially during those moments where his the suit which was the eradicator designed suit morphed itself right based on how much of that kryptonian was sort of 
coming to the fore. So, you know, at one point he's sort of beating someone down and the, the Superman suit sort of morphs into the Kryptonian uh, dress. And then, uh, I forget who, but somebody comes in, in the door and they call, and, and he's already sort of morphed back. So they walk in, as far as they know, it's still Superman. But we, the reader, know that in that moment when he was sort of essentially alone, he had that, that, that moment where the Kryptonian side came through. So I, I actually really liked it. Yeah, so did I. For all the reasons you laid out, and just visually, I, I think it was kind of cool. I, uh, you know, comic book artist Ken Marion. I know you're listening. Uh, let me know what you think of that design as well, because you know he and I have had a lot of talks, and we're actually going to do an episode down the line a little bit about the visual evolution of Superman, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, kind of some of the variations. I mean, he and I have often discussed the black costume post, uh, you know, resurrection, which we're both fans of. Uh, but yeah, I thought I thought this design was was pretty cool, and definitely, like you said, thematically. I mean, like really. Uh, it was a great visual representation of where Clark, a.k.a. Kal-El, was, you know, in his journey at the time. You know, speaking of the the visuals here, it, it was it was fascinating to see. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed the art overall, really, for the most part, I have to say. Um, but it was interesting to see uh, the art of Dan Jurgens and specifically how different it looked depending on the inker. Because I guess I'm most used to seeing him with Brett breeding. And I feel like that's sort of like the, when I think of the iconic, like Dan Jurgen Superman, that's what I think of. But, you know, there's an issue that where he's inked by, by Klaus Janssen and it's like, it looks totally different. I think there's, there's another one, Ty Temple, Temple Smith, Templeton? Ty Templeton. Yeah. Ty Templeton. Um, that looks like, you know, again, there are numerous instances where he's inked by different people and you, it's like, it, it looks very different. So, um, and not necessarily bad, but it was just, I didn't. You know, I didn't have that instant connection where it's like, oh, it's that Dan Jurgens art. Like, they really made a big difference. Yeah, there are, look, there are a lot of pencilers who essentially look the same. You know, their work looks the same almost regardless of who's inking them, right? It's a distinct, such a distinctive style. Jurgens here, you, you can see the evolution of his work, right? Because we know what it looks like once we get to the sort of death of and everything following that. Um, where he is inked, I think, at that point, exclusively by by Brett Breeding. But, I mean, he's inked by Art T. Bear. He's inked by, I think, George Perez. At certain yeah, points. yeah. Andy, Andy Kubert, a very young Andy Kubert, does an issue over him. Like, there's some really interesting takes. But what's funny is, like, when he's being inked by Andy Kubert, it looks like Andy Kubert. When he's inked by Art T. Bear, it looks like Art T. Bear. It, it really does. The inker almost, their their style overpowers his which i also noticed uh and found fascinating yeah for sure um that that was uh, uh you know i definitely clocked that as i was making my way through uh those issues but again it's cool you know and, and just when i started to see him because i think he did maybe there were a couple of fill-ins here and there and then like to see him you know uh to see him more regularly and then taking over the writing as well like it was it was mm -hmm. cool to see you know where uh you know such a legendary superman creator got his start on the character uh, what else do you have in, in your notes there? Um, so I had made a note about Matrix because in the, <laughs> certainly in the first part of our reading, Matrix plays a, a huge role. Um, you know, Matrix, this sort of amorphous kind of blob of an alien creature who uh, comes to Earth and, and it ends up living with the Kents. They, they almost sort of adopt her. And, and what's interesting is Matrix takes on a distinctly female persona at first. Um, you know, she's alien, but, 
you know, visually she looks much more traditionally female and she's referred to by female pronouns. And at the point where that shifts and when Clark is in exile and she, and, and, and as you said, there, there's been this assassination attempt on, on Clark and they killed the wrong person and he's presumed dead. And, and in order to, in order to kind of, um, not arouse suspicion because the Kents and Matrix know that the real Clark is actually out in space. Matrix morphs her body into Clark Kent um, and takes on the persona of Clark Kent. Not of Superman, but of, of Clark. And it's at that point that everybody starts referring to Matrix by male pronouns. Matrix is now a he. Not Clark, but Matrix. So what was interesting to me is, you know, I read this, you know, through the lens of 2021 as, you know, a transgender character. This is a transgender character, right? Her, her birth gender essentially is, is female. And through weird sci-fi circumstances, right, uh, she becomes male. Um, and I thought that was really neat. I, I'm sure that's not what the creators intended it back in 1991 or two or whenever this, you know, this was. But I couldn't help but see it through that lens. I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I made a similar connection because where where Superman in particular is thinking to himself about the character and he, he's struggling with the pronouns himself. Uh, yeah, it definitely called to mind. Uh, you know, it, you know exactly the you know the the, the gender you know. Uh, points that you brought up so uh yeah i know i agree probably not the intention but definitely through the modern lens you know you can't help but think that you know i we still have a long way to go before matrix becomes supergirl uh which again is is something that i know happens but i've never actually read the story so i'm curious and the last time we see matrix he slash she they are are off world um after you know initially matrix thinks that they're superman um, and they, and, you know, Superman and Matrix battle, and then finally Matrix leaves, uh, Earth, and that's the last that we see of them at, at the end of this bunch of issues. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, there's so much stuff where, I, like, I'm just, I'm genuinely curious and excited to see how we get, you know, from, from one point to the next. Uh, you, you had mentioned earlier about Clark going to work for a rival publication. I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever even knew that this happened, uh, but yeah, Colin Thornton, who he becomes the villain, uh, Satanus, right? If I'm not mixing him up, I think it's so. Possible. I believe so. Uh, he owns Newstime uh, magazine and he poaches Clark and Clark makes the decision to leave, uh, you know, during the whole Eradicator saga. But, uh, you know, that was an interesting thing. And, you know, it didn't get, I guess it didn't. It got play, but it mostly got play in the context of, you know, showing Clark becoming increasingly cold and Kryptonian. But just the idea of him leaving and taking on this role of an editor, uh, I thought was cool. And I loved, uh, you know, Perry gave him a lot of a lot of great advice. And I love the, you know, the send off that the Daily Planet gave him that they looked like they were giving him the cold shoulder, but then they threw him this party. Um, I have to say Perry overall, because I found that especially in uh, on-screen depictions, not all the time, but sometimes, and I'm especially thinking of the George Reeves show, you know, Perry can be exceedingly gruff. Uh, but I found that th this, this Perry is, is quite um, understanding and, you know, paternal at times um, and, and definitely, you know, is, is someone who cares. And that comes across a lot. I like this depiction of Perry White. 
yeah, he was a lot softer. Yeah. Uh, and we saw that in a couple of ways. Uh, the, the one that I, well, there are two that I particularly liked. Uh, one was, you know, there were several members of the Daily Planet staff, Lois included, who really don't like the fact that Clark has abandoned the planet. And, you know, because they think of themselves not just as a staff, but really as a family. And somebody leaving is a personal right? It's not just that he's making a professional decision. It's, it feels like a personal affront, right? Um, Perry, the conversation he has with Perry, seems like Perry understands someone's need to kind of move beyond the place where they've been for several years, right? I mean, Clark has been a, a reporter for so many years. So for him to get to go somewhere else and be a managing editor, which is a position Perry can't offer him. Right. Um, you know, to, to to love somebody enough to say, I will be sad to let you go, but I just want you to be happy and fulfilled in whatever way you can do that. And so he sends him off, as you said, with, with advice, right? He's not resent. He doesn't at least appear to be resentful. And then the other way that we see him really being paternal was when he finds out that one of his employees, this, this intern, Alice, Allie, yeah is homeless and has been living in the storeroom for like two years and and his first instinct is number one well it's christmas time of course too so you know spirit of giving and and you know, first of all you're coming home with me you're going to come home and you're going to have a nice home-cooked meal and then it's at that point that he springs on her with his own wife who's also named alice that she can live there essentially until she has enough money to get back on her feet, which he will provide by giving her essentially the back pay for all the extra hours that she's done and give her sort of a, a promotion. And so he provides this opportunity for her in this really wonderful way and then goes on beyond that and like writes this editorial yeah. that we see all of at the end of that issue where he asks everybody, everybody who's reading the paper, to not assume that the homeless person on the street is just some worthless bum, but rather, you know, that it could be somebody who just has fallen on hard times, just going through some stuff. And instead of casting them aside, maybe lend a hand, you know, do something tangible. Don't just throw your money to the local charity, but actually do something to help these people. And I thought, what a progressive, you know, listen, you know, comics lately have come under fire for, you know, creators sort of having a sort of a liberal agenda that, that some fans don't love. I mean, it was, it was right here. I mean, this is, you know, this is essentially the liberal agenda at work, but it's really beautiful to see. I love that aspect of Perry. As, as did I. And I love that issue in particular, that Christmas issue. I thought it was very heartwarming. Um, well, you know, while we're talking about uh, the, the, the daily planet journalism side of things, you know, when one thing that we, we're told a lot about, but we're not shown a ton of is Clark's expose on intergang, which, you know, it's funny. We got all these, all these pages on Lex's hostile takeover and the poison pill and all this corporate maneuvering. It's like, I would have loved to have seen Clark actually investigating intergang. It sounded really fascinating, <laughs> but the, the thing that really made me laugh was, you know, when Clark decides he's going to leave earth to exile himself, he tells Perry, he's like, you know, there's a lot of heat from intergang because of this, this series, you know, this expose series that I'm writing. So I got to, I got to get underground. Right. But I'm going to mail you installments. And, you know, before he leaves earth, right. He gives Ma and Pa like all, all of these articles and tells them, he tells them to, you know, mail them every couple of weeks. And <laughs> the thing I just kept thinking was like, 
this sounds like really like important, valuable information about intergang. <laughs> Why are you parsing it out? This feels like something that the public and the police should know, like all in one shot. <laughs> I mean, it's important enough that someone put a hit out on him for it. Yeah. That's huge. Well, and it's just like, well, so clearly the entire thing is pre-written. So it's like, <laughs> it really, it, it, it really made me laugh. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the intergang stuff, um, again, except when Morgan Edge is like actually putting hits out on them, you know, the actual investigating, all of that just kind of happens, you know, more off panel. But, um, you know, at, at least it, it does speak to Clark's, you know, you know, investigative prowess and why he is this you know, this top reporter. Um, we also find out during this this run of, of issues that, uh, you know, Morgan Edge, he thought he was working for Darkseid, but it was actually Desaad posing as Darkseid. Um, you know, I was, it's funny because in the lead up to this, I was saying to myself, like, what is Darkseid's agenda here? It's like, why would he be this involved in intergang? It, it, it just feels so small and pedestrian for this god and I mean, honestly, I still have the same question, even if it's Desaad. But I mean, basically, it just comes down to he wants to sow chaos. That's that's basically it, which is fine, I guess. I would, maybe I was hoping for a little bit more of of, of an explanation. Uh, and then you know, Morgan Edge he has a heart attack. He's in the hospital for a bit. He's got his legal issues, and then his father, Vincent Edge, uh, emerges and gets his seat back on the board. And I, I know we're gonna we're gonna have more play uh, there too. But uh, but there's that. And then Cat Grant turned out to be the informant all along. You know, we talked about this a couple episodes ago, but I, I genuinely enjoyed Cat Grant during the burn era for the most part. And I, I thought she emerged as like a, a surprisingly viable romantic interest for Clark. I really liked um, their relationship because again, this was especially again in that burn era in particular, where again, things between Lois and Clark were super, no pun intended, frosty. <laughs> And yeah. I actually liked, you know, with, with Kat and, you know, I like that, you know, Kat did have baggage and, and, you know, she had her son that, you know, she didn't have custody of and, you know, the, the alcoholism, there was a lot of stuff going on with Kat, but I thought it was interesting. And I, I liked the relationship between the two of them. And that really took a back seat. He, I feel like with, you know, with Lois and Jose and with Clark and Kat, I feel like they really pivoted away uh, from those romances. But, um, but yeah, that's what she was up to during this period too. Yeah. I mean, <sighs> I'm of two minds because on the one hand, I don't think, I don't think you need a romance to add into everything else that's going on. I mean, I, I know that, you know, obviously there are plenty of readers who, you know, would love that angle and for, for them, maybe this was missing, but you know, if you're not going to do it with Lois, right. If there isn't going to be the romantic relationship there, yeah, I'm with you. I, I would have liked to see it maybe explored in other ways, especially if these creators knew down the line that it was always going to come back to Lois. And I think it's fair, fairly safe to say that at least somebody knew that it would. So, yeah, Cat Grant would have been a great avenue to explore, even Lana. Because yeah. several times, you know, there are Smallville visits, and most of them include Lana. Um, and... I could see that relationship starting to rekindle itself as they're now adults, right? We know that they were childhood sweethearts, but, but, you know, to do something with that here, even if it ultimately didn't work out in the long run, I think would have been really neat. And, and the fact that we don't get really any sort of, you know, romantic entanglements for, for Clark in these, in these issues, maybe felt like a, a slight omission. 
You're always so you and Rich Roney fall into the same category of of you know always very diplomatic and and respectful and I that <laughs> I I get what you're saying and you know I, I guess the way I look at it too especially in you know with the benefit of of hindsight now I guess and really taking this long view of Superman you know pre crisis it's like they just as much as you know with Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane but it's like they never went there. They never had a relationship, right? And, you know, there were, you know, and there was the, you know, Lana and Lois competing. But again, they never went there. It's not like he, Superman ever picked and they ever dated or anything like that. And then, you know, now that we know the layout of post-crisis Superman, you know, within a, just a couple of years, as we talked about before, he'll be with Lois and he'll be with Lois moving forward. I mean, I know the new 52 played around with, you know, a Wonder Woman instead, but it's like now taking a long view of the character in comics, it's like... There was this very tiny window post crisis where there was a there we, where the stories were actually I guess you know mature enough at that point where they would would go down the road of a romance that little window before it becomes just Lois I was like yeah I kind of wish that um, you know that we we could have seen him in more of a relationship with someone else and I I agree I mean I think Lana I think they could have done something with Lana there I mean she kisses him before he leaves for his for his exile I mean there's something there that's why too I really think you're going to enjoy. The Superman and Lois show when you finish the season. I was thinking about this. I truly think, and you know what a massive Smallville fan I am. However, I I truly think that Superman and Lois is the best treatment Lana has gotten as a character, really in any medium. And as much as they saddled her with um, a husband who didn't seem all that great initially, over the course of the season, I think they do. I think they do a good job of fleshing him out, showing you know, why she would be with him and also giving him some redeeming qualities. Um, Cause at the beginning I was like, Oh man, like they just, you know, just like Lana was with Whitney at the start of the Smallville show. Was like, oh, she's with this <laughs> right. guy. And you know, now Clark has moved back to Smallville. She's going to pine for him. And they didn't do that. And I, you know, we're only in season one, but I, I give them a lot of credit. So uh, I, I think the Superman and Lois show has really gone a long way towards, um, I mean, not undoing, but like maybe a little, a little making up for the way Lana has been treated, particularly in the comics, which has, you know, not, not been great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I regret that that was just a show that sort of fell outside of in the next couple of weeks. I plan to, to catch up. Gotcha. You, you dropped out there for a second, but I think I, I think I picked up what you were saying that <laughs> you fell out of the oh, show, but you're sorry. hoping to, you're hoping to uh, catch up uh, in the near future. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right on. So I, I think I've pretty much said everything that I wanted to about this, this period that we read for this. Was there anything else that, um, that you wanted to talk about? I have one last thought on this and I wanted specifically, cause we've danced around it a bit. I want to specifically call out some of the creators who really surprised me in some in some great ways? Um, I will say I have a br I have a new appreciation for Jerry Ordway, both as a writer as an artist. Um, I it's not that I disliked him. I never I, I never had any particular reason to to not appreciate his work. I just it just never pleased me aesthetically in ways that other artists had. Um, and reading these issues. I don't know whether it's the age that I am or the other comics that I've seen. I thought his, his work was exemplary. I really did both in, in the writing and the art. I thought his cartooning was so expressive. His line work was so textured. It was so wonderful. Um, so I have a, I have a new appreciation for Jerry Ordway and I really under 
valued creator who I guess was big in this era. And then you just didn't see him very much. Carrie Gamble yeah. was so good. I mean, it was so the, the first uh, issue of Exile, as soon as I open up the book, boom, there's a Carrie Gamble splash page. I went, this is really good. This, without all the bells and whistles of like, you know, digital coloring and all that stuff. Like it is, it is the art kind of unadulterated and it's really beautiful. Um, his page layouts, his figure work, he really is doing some, some exceptional things. Um, to me, the standout writer of all this was Roger Stern. Stern. Yeah. <laughs> right. And again, and again, like, you, you know, he's up there, you know, a lot of times as an Avengers writer, but I, I just, his dialogue to me sort of read the most naturally um, the pace, his pacing. I, I really appreciated what he was doing. Um, and then to me, the single superstar of this is editor Mike Carlin, because, because an editor in this, in this era is the guy who's keeping everything running. When you've got three different titles that are all sort of, alternating with each other with all of the subplots that we've now explored so there's got to be one person who keeps it all straight and all running and that's him and having the foresight to basically take two two letterers throughout this entire run right you got albert de guzman and bill oakley who are doing the the, the majority of it john costanza comes in every now and again and glenn whitmore on colors for the entire run I mean, and this and this keeps going. This this is going to go on and on, well into the the death um, era. Like to have a you know the variety of artists that we have. There's got to be a consistent look and feel that marks this as a Superman title. Even if you open the book and Superman's not on that page, right? Can you recognize that this is a a Superman book? And if you look at the lettering and you look at the coloring it reads as a Superman title. So, you know, that's the glue that's kind of keeping this all together. And, and we often forget about sort of some of those, uh, you know, uh, unsung heroes, but I wanted to call them out for what I thought was, was really extraordinary work. Well said, I don't disagree with any of that. And, you know, specifically on the note of the editing and the coordination overall, you know, again, I mean, this was a different because again, during the burn era, there was that to an extent, but burn was the primary force, you know, by the end of the burn era, he was, he was writing all three titles and drawing two of them. Um, you know, so here now you're dealing with a larger number of creators and, you know, they didn't have the benefits of modern technology that we enjoy today. So the fact that they were able to keep all those plates spinning, keep everything in order, keep all those subplots straight. Um, I mean, yeah, the level of coordination, you know, uh, among the creators and certainly, um, you know, from the editing standpoint was really tremendous. I, I agree with that. And, you know, I echo the creators you called out as well. I mean, with Ordway in particular is one who, again, I'd never you know, disliked or anything like that, but I definitely have a newfound appreciation, especially because, you know, he was the the main guy who carried over from the burn era. And I think really, you know, um, you know, that helped the, the, you know, the books have a strong sense of, of continuity. Um, they do give burn uh, credit in um, at least one issue, if not a couple more, um, talking about how, you know, uh, he set up a lot of the stuff you know, that they would, they would play off in these issues. 
Uh, and again, I don't know if this was exactly what Byrne was intending. You know, when he had Superman kill the, the villains in the pocket universe, was he intending to do this exile story? Um, I don't I don't know, but clearly that gave them a great place to go uh, moving forward. I guess the last thing I, w- that I wanted to mention was, I did think of one more thing. Uh, in that exile story, um, you know, it was interesting to see like where where he went on on his space odyssey. And, you know, the first world he goes to, it's a hospitable world. Um, and it seems like, it, you know, it could be a place for him. But right off the bat, he ends up saving a space shuttle. And, you know, upon, you know, landing, he's swarmed by, you know, all the citizens of this planet. And it is a direct echo of what happened when he made his debut in Metropolis and everyone wanted a piece of him. And, you know, so he realizes like this is, I'm going to fall into the same cycle as I did before. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, He also ends up like inside a space creature and he ends up on worlds that are, are not hospitable. The most heartbreaking part, even even more so than War World, which I know was traumatic, but even the most heartbreaking part was when he found that world uh, that was just covered in, in grain in, in, the, in these fields that he was going to farm. And he builds a little little hut for himself. And it's like, you know, he's getting back to his roots. You know, he grew up on a farm. Like he can just be at peace with himself here. And then everything is washed away in a flood and he it becomes clear that this is something that happens on a regular basis. There's a reason why this planet is is uninhabited. And then as he's leaving, he's just like pelted by, you know, space debris um, and, you know, it punctures his um, his breathing apparatus. Uh, but it was just it was so heartbreaking because it's like, yeah, that, you know, if if you're going to exile yourself <laughs> and be uh, be alone for that character in particular, that's pretty perfect. And to have that taken away like that, um, yeah, I really, I really felt for the character in, in that issue in particular. Yeah. That would have offered him the peace that he was seeking, right? Cause he, in, in solitude without the fear of hurting anybody, cause that's why he exiled himself in the first place, right? He was afraid he was going to hurt somebody. This would have provided him with the time and the space to process without putting anybody in danger. And it was looking perfect. And yeah, it was, it was, it was stolen. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, Scott, we've gone for just under two hours. I thank you very, very much for this discussion. I really enjoyed this. Um, I, you know, I think you and listeners could, t- I mean, I was really excited. I mean, I, I'm so enjoying, I so enjoyed what we read. I'm so looking forward to what's to come, but this was a great conversation. You know, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the conversation and all of your insight. I really appreciate your willingness to take on this reading project. I mean, you know, cause we've been talking about this for months and months and months and I've given you numerous outs because I'm like, you know, you're also doing the next two episodes. I mean, when we, by the time we're done with parts four, five, and six of this podcast event, you know, you and I will have read and discussed about 150 issues of Superman comics. <laughs> Is that the record? Uh, yes. On this podcast? Yes. Yeah. For sure. All right. <laughs> that is the record. I don't know if and when anyone would even come <laughs> close to that. Uh, so, so, I mean, and I know, um, you know, I know you, I know you enjoy these reading projects, but, but still, I, I appreciate you being willing to, to take them on and, and the fact that you take them on, you know, with as much uh, passion and care as you do. Um, I appreciate it. And I, I'm sure the audience does as well. So thank you. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Listen, it's, it, it has been one of the thrills of the last couple of years of my life to be able to, uh, you know, to go from being a listener of your podcasts to being a, a, a sometime guest on. Them. So I just I appreciate the opportunity. Just like you, I, I, I 
having these conversations with you about this stuff feeds my soul. So uh, I, thanks for having me back again. I look forward to the next two. Yeah, so you'll be back for parts five and six. Um, audience, thank you very much uh, for tuning in. I hope you've been enjoying uh, our eight-part event. We've, we're now at the halfway point. Uh, so Scott and I will be back here in one week. Remember, this is a weekly event. So we'll be back in one week uh, with part five of Crisis Till Death. Uh, we'll be covering the next 50 or so issues <laughs> of uh, Superman comics from this period. So uh, you don't want to miss it. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Greg Schiegel. Music by Basic Printer. Join the conversation by becoming part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network Facebook group. Follow Digging for Kryptonite on Instagram and Twitter and visit flatsquirrelproductions.com to explore more of my film and podcast projects.